Well, you can join me in opening up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, and we're in chapter 5 now. Uh, If you're using one of the Bibles under the seats nearby, that's on page 840. And a reminder that as we approach God's Word, uh, we are looking for Him to do what only He can do. So, you, neither you nor I can do the work that needs to get done in this time in the human heart. Um, But the good news is that we actually can't stop the Lord from doing it either if He wants to. And so we're here gathered together looking for Him to do what only He can do above and beyond what we could even ask or think. Uh, But we still should ask. So would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank You for Your powerful Word that You have spoken in Scripture and brought to bear across the globe throughout the centuries. And so we pray that this morning you would do what we trust you are doing all over the planet today and what you have done through the centuries as your people gather under your word to hear you speak. And so we pray that you would open our eyes to behold the beauty and wonder and power and mercy of Jesus and that we would be transformed in ways that we couldn't do and we couldn't even predict uh, by your Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be looking at uh, what I think is one of the most incredible stories uh, in the Gospel of Mark, and it's one of my favorite moments in Jesus' ministry. This story is one of the most striking displays of Jesus' power and authority. So, we've been seeing through the gospel of Mark, Jesus announces that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's the king, and then he shows what it looks like as that kingdom power spreads, and what it looks like for the kingdom's presence to be here. And so, he's healing people of diseases. He's casting out demons. He's teaching and preaching the gospel. He's forgiving people of their sins. And this story in particular is an incredible display of his power. And so, what we're seeing here is what uh, the Lord, the world's true king does when confronting great evil. And what I've come to love about this story is not just what it shows about Jesus' power, but what it shows about His heart. It doesn't just show Jesus' power, but why He uses it. This story shows us that Jesus uses His power to show mercy. That's what's driving Him. And it's this combination of power and mercy that makes him so compelling. So there's really two central themes in this story, and then we'll read it in just a moment. It's the power of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus. So they're connected together. Jesus shows his power for the sake of showing mercy. So he, in particular, shows his power over demons to show his mercy uh, toward his people. So let's read together Mark chapter 5 and the first 20 verses here. They, that is Jesus and His disciples, came to the other side of the sea, Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gerasenes, or to Gergesa. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met Him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind Him anymore, not even with a chain, For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, 
he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there. I love this phrase. Clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, the ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So this story shows us one of the ways that Jesus came to remove evil from the world for the sake of extending mercy. So here's the message in a nutshell. Demons are strong. Jesus is stronger. He shows his power over demons to give mercy to his people. So I mentioned that this is one of my favorite stories, one of my favorite moments in Jesus's ministry. It didn't used to be that way. I think there's some details here that can be distracting or strange, and you know, it can be summarized as like, oh, the story about the pigs, right? Uh, But if we can kind of get past some of the strange details and look at the heart of this story, it's an incredible moment. And this story has also recently become very personal to me. Um, A friend of mine has experienced something similar to what this story speaks of. Um, And so it's brought this closer to home for me. I'll share more about that later. So let's walk through this together. Here's what we'll see um, as we move through the story. We see the man who needs mercy. We see how Jesus shows it. And then we'll see how people respond to this powerful mercy. So first, the man who needs it, this first section here in the verse, uh, first six verses. So the previous day, um, to give context here, Jesus was teaching on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee and he was teaching crowds. So it's that moment where he's kind of out in a boat speaking to crowds of people. And then as evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go across the sea. So they're going to cross over to the eastern side of the sea. Which side did I say he's on? It's on the western side, going eastern. So they cross over. And if you were here last week, we saw that this kind of hurricane-like storm uh, rose and threatened to kill them. And then Jesus, with a word, calms it. And so now they're across to the other side of the sea, of Galilee. They've reached the shoreline. It says that they came to the country of the Gerasenes, or your, your uh, Bible may have a footnote that said some manuscripts say Gergesenes or Gadarenes. So there's actually some question about what the original Greek text said, because there's a few places with similar 
names in this area on the other side of the sea. Um, so it could be referring to a place called Gerasa or Gergesa. I think Gergesa is probably where this happened. It was a town on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and there even is kind of this steep cliff where you can imagine the pigs uh, running down. Uh, so the setting kind of fits here. But the question is, why would Jesus come here? I think he came on purpose to this man. This man was probably well-known, and Jesus wants to come to do exactly what he ended up doing. He often sets things up like this. Have you noticed that about Jesus? He doesn't just stumble through things. He's often kind of setting up situations in order to display his power or show his mercy or teach. He's very strategic. Uh, He lets situations unfold in front of him that will allow him to display who he is and communicate who he is. And so what happens? Well, Jesus steps on the shore of this very unlikely shoreline for Jesus to show up on. And this man immediately came to meet him. He had seen him from far away, and he comes running to him. Verses 2 to 5 slow down and give us this detailed description of the man. So he experienced incredible suffering. It's one of the most extreme situations imaginable. I mean, verse 2 here tells us that he had an unclean spirit, so what we call a demon, an evil spiritual being, uh, indwelling him. We'll see it's more than just one. And now, Even at this moment, verse 2 of this story, we as modern readers can start to get distracted because we can have this little thought in our head, or maybe a big thought in our head, that we really can't take this seriously. Whatever's going to happen in this story, um, we're not going to be able to take it seriously. Many think that, you know, back then they would attribute, you know, anything to demons. They were superstitious, but we know better now. We know more about physical diseases and mental illness, so we wouldn't attribute things Uh, to demons like they would have back then. But when we read through the Gospel of Mark, there's two things that stand out. The first thing is that it's true. Demons show up a lot. Uh, You cannot take Jesus' ministry seriously as it's presented in the Gospel of Mark without taking the demonic world seriously. It's a regular part of Jesus' ministry to cast out demons. Even earlier in chapter 1, it's like Jesus went around healing and teaching and casting out demons. It's just one of the main things he did. It was integral to his ministry. He did these all the time. So casting out demons is not kind of this rare part of his ministry. But here's the second observation about Mark's gospel. As we read through it, we see that this was only one part of a very multifaceted ministry. It was one of many issues that different people faced. There's actually a lot of careful observation and nuance in this book. People were not just superstitiously attributing every problem to demons. There's very specific medical conditions mentioned in the Gospel of Mark that people had. Sometimes Jesus heals someone from a particular physical disease, sometimes from a mental illness, and sometimes, but certainly all, not always, from demon possession. Or sometimes there's a case where it's both, and it's clearly both. There's kind of a mental or physical issue and a demonic influence. Uh, so Mark's careful here. They didn't just kind of say, oh, well, here's someone that has a problem, uh, must be demons, and, you know, Jesus went around casting out demons. Not like that at all. So the point is that they were not naive or gullible or superstitious here. Jesus was addressing all sorts of problems, and they viewed demonic oppression as one of them. So for us today, you know, it's interesting. We can kind of uh, put them back then at this kind of extreme view as like attributing everything to demons, but they're actually much more moderate in their thinking or careful in their thinking and observation. But really, we can have the opposite error in swinging the other extreme and not having a category for this at all and attributing everything to 
uh, just a natural um, explanation. And so the Gospel of Mark is avoiding these two most common extremes. It avoids the extreme of kind of obsessing over demons and demonic oppression and assuming every problem is influenced by this. It also avoids the other extreme of dismissing it altogether. Uh, It was factored in because it was part of reality. So stories like this, both in the Gospel of Mark and stories that you may hear of people or maybe you've experienced, can wake us up to this neglected aspect of reality uh, in Western culture. C.S. Lewis said that we've all been under the spell of naturalism and materialism, and we need something dramatic to break us out of it, to break the spell. Uh, We need to realize that maybe we've been tricked into thinking that what we see is all there is, and we need to realize that there's more to reality going on. So rather than dismiss a story like this, maybe we need to let this wake us up, because we do know that there is more to the world than just Uh, what we can see. We know there is real evil. There is real love. There is true beauty. There is real goodness. And there are realities then that we can't explain uh, or attribute any real lasting significance to with just a materialistic uh, or secular worldview. So, let's be open to this. So, this man had this demonic influence in him, And this led him to live among the tombs. So these would have kind of been like the ancient graveyards. They would have been like caves you could walk into and lay uh, a dead body in. And so he's living among them. And no one could subdue this man. They tried to chain him. He'd break it apart. Nothing could contain him. And verse 5 shows the tragedy of his life. You can look at it with me. It says, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So he was a problem for others. He was a problem for himself. I mean, what an incredibly sad picture. He reminds me of Smeagol or Gollum and the Lord of the Rings here. And he's harming himself, cutting himself. We know that that is still a, a concern today for many people. Many people can lose such hope that they begin to hurt themselves. And so here's an encouragement from this story, especially for those of you who may have felt like this man in different ways uh, or know someone and love someone who does. Jesus is not repelled by someone who harms themselves like this. He is drawn to this man. He has compassion on this man. He is drawn to help. So if you feel stuck in patterns of self-harm, or you know and love someone who does, Jesus can give help and hope and healing. And that's his heart. So this man had layers Um, of concerns and problems. He was completely helpless. No one had the ability to help him. No one had the strength to help him. And he's left to live among the tombs, wander the hills, cry out day and night. So that's the man who needs Jesus' mercy. Now let's look at how Jesus gives it in verses 7 to 13. So this man ran up to Jesus, fell down before him, and a confrontation happens. Jesus starts speaking to the demon inside this man calling it to get out of the man, and then the man is, or the demon speaking through the man, is responding. So look at verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I mean, he knows who Jesus is. It's interesting at this point in the Gospel of Mark, no one has a clue really who Jesus is. The demons do. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man you unclean spirit. So, Jesus then asks him his 
name, and the man responds, but it isn't the name of the man. Most likely, we don't know his name. I wish we did. It's the name of the demon. The demon says, my name is Legion, for we are many. So Legion was a term described, used to describe a military unit. So a legion was the largest troop unit in the Roman army, something around five or 6,000 soldiers. So we don't know if that's exactly the number of demons in this mind, but the point is, uh, there's not just a demon in here, there's an army of them. And what does Jesus do? Well, this moment is important because whatever Jesus is about to do, it's going to be new. Because we've seen Jesus cast out demons before. This story is unique because this is not just one demon. You know, Jesus going one-on-one with a demon, and he wins, and you say, wow, he's stronger than that. It would raise the question, well, just how powerful is Jesus? How about an army of them? And what does Jesus do? Well, the demons ask, beg, <laughs> right? They say, let us send, be sent into the herd of pigs, and Jesus permits them, right? Because he's the commander, he's in charge, and they know it. And so they go into the pigs, and then the, they charge into the sea and drown. Very strange. What do we make of it? Well, it's important to note that uh, Jesus did not propose the idea that they go into the pigs, nor did he command them to drown themselves in the water. So I think if we just kind of glaze through this story, we can think, why did Jesus have all those pigs die? Well, at least as we're looking at the story, he's permitting the demons to leave and go into the pigs, and then they rush down into the shore and drown. In other words, this just shows the self-destructive bent of these demons. It's not surprising. They're in this man, self-destructing this man, and then they go in the pigs, and then they drown because that's what they're like. And Jesus allows it to happen, to have mercy on this man. And so let's make sure we see the main point here. This is an incredible display of power. An army of demons. And Jesus says, yeah, you can leave. I'll let you. And they go. Uh, He's in charge. He goes into this enemy-occupied territory and tells an army of demons to get out. And they do, without a battle, without a fight, without a struggle, without talkback. This story is about Jesus' power. And it's also about his mercy. Because look at the result. Look at the man in verse 15. I love this description. They came to Jesus. These people, when they found out, they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. By the way, I love that after this man is freed of the demons, he's not just referred to as kind of the demoniac or the man who's possessed by demons or the demon-possessed man, because that's past. Uh, He's the man who had the legion of demons. So I kind of want to honor the guy and make sure I talk like that too. Love this guy. Okay, so there he is, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. So apparently this man was probably naked before, covered in self-inflicted wounds, living among the tombs, crying out all the time, and now he's sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And in verse 19, Jesus tells us what this story is about. He says it's about mercy. So he tells the man to go tell others how the Lord has had mercy on you. That's what this story is about for Jesus. Not go and tell people about the power that you saw. Go and tell people about the display of strength that you've seen, though that's true and should be proclaimed in this part of his glory. But Jesus says, you go tell people how the Lord has had mercy on you, because that was the goal. Jesus used his power in order to display mercy. He had mercy on the man, 
And in order to have, show his compassion and mercy and set him free, he used his power for that end. His mercy is driving it. That's what drives Jesus. This is his heart. This story wouldn't have happened if Jesus just wanted to display his power. I mean, it's not like if demons were able to like be in a rock, Jesus shows up and he casts them out to say, look at my power. No, this was a man who needed mercy, and that's why this story happened. And Jesus used his power because he loved this man, and he came there to set this man free. Um, it seems like this was intentional by Jesus. Again, I don't want to speculate here, but it is just interesting that Jesus the night before tells his disciples, let's go across the other side without an explanation, and then they go and they show up in this uh, place that would have been very unexpected for Jewish people to go. It's Gentile territory, clearly on this side of the sea. There's pigs there, which would have been, I mean, there's like a whole bunch of pigs. Maybe even they were there to supply uh, food for a Roman army nearby, perhaps, so unclean there. And then you have this, this demon-possessed man with the army of demons. No doubt Jesus knew what was going on. The guy was probably infamous. And then Jesus says, we're going to go there because he, he, wants, he loves this man. Uh, the Lord did this to a friend of mine uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, he was, he's about 20 years old, and about a year and a half ago, he started to get into uh, New Age beliefs and practices. So he started reading books and practicing kind of modern meditation practices, and his friends were telling him how great it was. They seemed to be, uh, they, all his friends, all these things he was doing, it seemed to be practical. They seemed to be connected to God, and so he said that when he would start to meditate, he would feel a rush of energy, and he started to practice uh, manifestation, uh, which is this belief that we have power to think about a, a positive future we want and make it happen with our, with our thoughts and our hopes about that. So we think, um, you know, we have the power to manifest certain things in our life based upon what we think and pray. Um, so if you think about the positive future you want to see happen, you have power to make it happen. It's spreading belief in our culture right now and practice. So he said that when he started doing this, all sorts of coincidences and signs started happening that confirmed for him that this is real. Uh, they confirmed for me as he was telling me, yeah, like all sorts of just really surprising things were happening that he would want to have happen and that would happen. Uh, all sorts of good things started happening. Uh, job offers, someone gives him a coat with a bunch of money in it, all sorts of stuff. He, and he said he kept feeling this rush of energy and living in this kind of state of euphoria. And drugs were not involved here. And so then he <clears throat> uh, talked to his mom. He was visiting home, uh, who's a Christian, and she made a comment to him when he was visiting home because he was describing these things to her. He said, oh, this is all positive. It's real spirituality. And she said that Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. She said that, you know, a lot of other religions and spiritual practices may be controlled by Satan and demons. In other words, she didn't doubt that what he experienced was real. She didn't just dismiss it. She assumed, yeah, like, Sounds real to me, but this may not be positive. Um, it may be demonic. So that just started making him question things. And so he started wearing a cross necklace. And all of a sudden, he went back home in the L.A. area, and negative things started happening. I mean, it was like everything turned on him and flipped. Everything started changing. I won't go into details here, but he had incredibly negative experiences, clearly supernatural, very scary uh, he lived near L.A., and he started encountering people on the streets who, looking back, must have been possessed by demons. They'd respond to him and his necklace in 
terrifying ways. They were repelled by him. Things started happening to him in his home. In fact, his uh, roommate uh, witnessed some of these things as well, uh, living there, and his roommate at that time was an atheist, and now he claims to follow Jesus as a result of what was undeniable, undeniably happening there. But God loved this young man, and his dad, who's also a good friend of mine, uh, pursued him, much like the heart of Jesus. Um, faithful father, pursuing him, traveled across country to be with him and to bring him home. And his dad witnessed the effects of the demonic presence as well, and there was still a struggle for weeks. And then one day, through tears, he uh, did what he said he wished he would have done long ago. He repented, and he begged the Lord to forgive him for his sins and to set him free uh, from this demonic harassment. And he woke up the next day, and it was gone. A switch flipped. So what happened? Jesus had mercy, and he showed his power out of a heart of mercy. He set him free, and he is now clothed and in his right mind. And he's a new person. And he said that he and his dad, I talked to both of them, they still experience some of these things from time to time, sometimes a strange knocking on walls and things like that. But I love how his dad puts it. He said that these are Satan's cheap tricks. That's all they are, cheap tricks. Because uh, they don't have real power, not compared to Jesus. And he said sometimes, his dad said this, that when they sense this demonic presence or harassment happening, he'll walk into the bedroom, son's bedroom, and go in the closet, right, the darkest, most scariest place at night, and he'll start praying Psalm 20, 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Right? Believing and trusting in Jesus as the king, knowing that demons are strong, Jesus is stronger. They have cheap tricks, but Jesus is in charge. And his dad said that they now have an understanding of God's grace and the power of the enemy, both sin and Satan, the world of flesh and the devil, and that they're stronger in their faith now than they've ever been as a result of these things. So this reinforces for me that the Lord Jesus is the same right now as he was then in this story we're reading. This isn't just some random thing that happened in the past. This is who Jesus is. This is his heart of mercy, and he has power to get done what he wants to get done in pursuit of showing mercy. He seeks people out. He shows them mercy. He sets them free. And because this story and Mark 5, uh, they make these two points. Jesus is stronger, even though demons are stronger. To flip that, right? Demons are strong. Jesus is stronger. Demons harm, but Jesus heals. Satan is driven by malice. Jesus is driven by mercy. And so we don't need to be afraid. So uh, some of you may have experienced things that you do, did not know how to explain. Some of you have had friends or family members who have, and you think, yeah, this, we may have been or be experiencing some kind of demonic oppression. I have other stories people have told me that are credible, plausible, um, that, that fit these things as well. And so what, what do we do? Well, Jesus doesn't give us some kind of formula or some kind of mantra or some kind of like five-step strategy. Um, we have the authority of Christ with us because Jesus is with us. So we proclaim him as king. We pray for him to do what only he can do. We, and we confidently move forward in life. And we partner together. And we pray and we proclaim his 
kingship because his kingdom's spreading and he has the power to show mercy. So let's now look at how people respond to this. What, what do people do when they see this kind of thing happen before their eyes? It's the final part of the story in verses 14 to 20. So there's two main responses to Jesus here. The first is fear. Uh, not fear of the demons, fear of Jesus and rejection. So the herdsmen, uh, probably a little bit upset about what happened, understandably so, uh, ran to the towns and city, and they told people what happened. So people started coming to see for themselves, and notice their response here in verse 15. They came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. So this man was probably infamous. He had, uh, people probably knew about him, and he's sitting there now completely transformed. All is well, but their response isn't joy, it's fear. Similar to if you were here last week when the disciples saw Jesus powerfully say, peace be still to the storm, and it was still, they didn't say, oh, thank you, Jesus. They were terrified. They were more frightened at Jesus's power than they were at the storm itself that threatened their life because this is a power they realize uh, they cannot tame and control. Who in the world are they dealing with here? And so people were afraid again. They're in the presence of a power they've never experienced before, and they are not yet sure that they can trust it. They're not sure they can trust Jesus yet. And so I don't think it's, it's not that they didn't understand what happened, and they're just kind of confused right now, because as they gather there, Mark says that those who witnessed these things explained to them the whole thing. And even after this, look how they respond in verse 17. After understanding what happened, they beg, they begin to beg Jesus to depart from their region right? They said, please leave. We might think that if Jesus just showed up today and showed his power, everyone would believe. We think that the problem is we're just so far removed from these things that happened um, at that time. But this story would indicate that's not true. Jesus was never welcomed by everyone who met him. Many people today also don't want Jesus to unsettle their lives. He can tend to disrupt the status quo. Because if Jesus is with us, he's in charge. And if he has this kind of power, he is not predictable. And so, Jesus said his message is like seed that scatters on the ground. Sometimes it lands on good soil and it's received. Sometimes it lands on hard soil and he's rejected. The problem is not with Jesus or the message. The problem is our hearts, the human heart. So, Jesus honors their request, starts to leave. But then as he goes, the man runs after him. And this shows us the second way to respond to Jesus. Look at verse 16. And as he was, Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. So that the people are begging Jesus to get out of there. And that man is begging to go with Jesus. Understandably so. What a picture. It's a picture of true discipleship. When Jesus first appointed those 12 disciples back in chapter 3, one of the marks of a disciple, Jesus said, is that they were, they were gathered, or Mark said, gathered to be with Jesus to follow him, to be with him. That's what this man wants. He wants to be with Jesus. That's at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and be a true Christian. You want to be with him. You desire to be with him. So, have you come to that place where you have seen Jesus' power and mercy You've seen him as the one who is the true king. He has authority over every square inch of this planet, and he also has a heart of mercy that he would lay down his life 
dying on the cross for our sins, that we might be forgiven and set free, and eventually when he returns, the whole world made new. All demonic presence gone. Um, Have you seen him, and does that make you say, I want to be with him? That's what this man did. This is different than just wanting to learn more about Jesus and being intrigued. This is more than just wanting to do a study on demons in the Bible. This is more than just wanting to be around his people or get educated. This, the heart of real Christianity is this desire to be with Jesus. And Jesus, like always, it seems, says something we would not expect. He tells the man that he can't come with him. I feel bad for the guy. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that Jesus wouldn't want this man to be with him. Jesus wants to be with all his people. He came to bring a salvation that guarantees us to be forever with him in a new creation. He prayed the night before he was crucified, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. That's in John 17. So Jesus, his heart is to be with his people. He wants to be with this man forever. That is his heart. That's why he came. So this is no reflection of his heart for the man, but Jesus has a specific purpose for the man. He sends him on mission. He's giving this man the privilege of participating in the spread of the kingdom by spreading the message of Jesus. So read this with me in verse 19. And Jesus did not permit him but said to him, go home to your friends, which is interesting. So we don't know who these people would have been, how long this man must have been possessed by demons, but he has some kind of background where he had friends. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he, this man, went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, so that's this area called the Ten Cities, um, largely Gentile, non-Jewish area, proclaimed, and he proclaimed there how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. So that's the other aspect of true discipleship. It's a desire to be with Jesus, but also uh, being sent on mission by Jesus to gather more people to be with Jesus. And Jesus sent this man to tell people what he had done for them, and he did. So that's what evangelism is. It's bearing witness to the work of Jesus. On this side of the cross, this is now part of our story. Jesus died, he's rose, and as we come to him, he's forgiven us, he's transformed us, and we have this same commission that this man started. I mean, perhaps the first witness, missionary to the Gentile world. We get to follow in his steps with the same mission. We've been transformed by Jesus, we've been forgiven by Jesus, now we go and we tell other people how much the Lord has done for us, personally and through his death and resurrection, and we share that. And notice, the mission is to tell. He's to tell people what the Lord has done for him. So Jesus doesn't just tell him, now that you have a transformed life, go and live this transformed life in front of people and that will be your mission. He tells him, you go and you speak. You have to tell people about what the Lord has done for you. So he sends him with a message to share, the message of Jesus. So this is a reminder for us that living on mission involves both living a transformed life and speaking about Jesus and what he's done, not one or the other. And here's why, because if we only share the message of Jesus, but we do not have 
um, any transformed life, and we're not showing love and kindness to other people, then uh, it's not compelling. On the other hand, if we only live differently and live a transformed life, then people will get the wrong impression because we'll be leading people to think that being a Christian is just about living a transformed life, and they don't even know how that happens. No one can see the good works and guess the gospel. Like, you could live the most radically transformed life, and if no one's heard the gospel, no one will guess it by seeing your life. They cannot become a Christian by seeing Christians merely love and live good lives. Power is in living lives of love and service and kindness and helping people know what the Lord has done for you, that He is the reason for this. Uh, He has brought forgiveness and transformation, and He invites others to come to Him to repent of their sins, to believe the gospel, and to be transformed. And so it's always a both and, and that's what Jesus sent this man to do. So, has Jesus transformed you? Have you received his forgiveness? Has the Lord had mercy on you? If you are not sure of the answer to that question, you can receive his grace today. The risen Lord Jesus is alive, and he's the king and he offers you forgiveness and freedom. And if you do know that he has, then you have a message to share, and I have a message to share, to go and live a transformed life and tell people how much the Lord has done uh, for us. Jesus has befriended us, and now we're called to go make friends for Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your mercy shown to this man through Jesus. Thank you for setting him free. And so we praise you for that. And we thank you for your work in our lives. And we pray that you would continue to transform us, to set people free, to push back the powers of evil and darkness and demonic presence in our world, and give people their lives back and set them free and show your mercy uh, to the praise of your grace in Jesus. Amen.